Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by the Wall Street Journal's Jason Riley, author of the provocative new book, Please Stop Helping Us, How Liberals Make It Harder for Blacks to Succeed. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thank you for having me. So I, I said in my brief intro that your book is provocative, but then again, um, much of what you're dealing with here is based on looking at empirical results and the historical record of leftism on the black community, and you're discussing it openly and honestly. Well, the thesis is that um, blacks ultimately must help themselves uh, by developing the, the habits and, and the attitudes and the behaviors that other groups in America had to develop in order for them to rise in, uh, economically. And, and to the extent that uh, government programs, uh, however well-intentioned, interfere with that self-development, uh, I think the record shows that they ultimately do more harm than good. And dating back really to the era of W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, uh, I know in your book you talk about a sort of split in terms of the way that each of those figures felt that blacks should sort of assimilate in society in a, a post-Civil War era. And I've seen that mentioned by Thomas Sowell and others as well. Speak a little bit to their differences and how those differences have manifested themselves uh, over the last century plus. Well, yeah, the W.B. Du Bois wanted to uh, focus on integration, integrating uh, political systems, educational systems, uh, corporate institutions, and so forth. And that was that was a priority. Uh, and his contemporary, uh, Booker T. Washington, wanted to focus more on self-help. Um, one of the quotes I have uh, in there from Booker T. is that uh, he says, and this is would have been back in the the late 1800s, early 1900s, he said, uh, I think it's important that all the rights and privileges that other people in this country have, blacks should also have. Um, and he was confident that one day blacks would, would, would obtain those rights. But he said, um, it's much more important that we be prepared to take advantage of those opportunities once we have them. And I think that was a, a, a sort of a summation of his philosophy that um, we have to focus on readying ourselves as a, as a group, as a people, as a culture, to take advantage of the opportunities when they come. And I think one of the failures of uh, the civil rights uh, movement post-1960s is not enough focus on, on readying blacks, particularly the black underclass, to take advantage of um, all the opportunities that society presents since uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed and the 1965 Voting Rights Act passed. Um, you know, this, this country is full of opportunities, and blacks, generally speaking, seem unprepared to take advantage of them. And to that end, in the book, you provide a very interesting window, I think, into this whole conversation of your own upbringing and what happened in the community in which you grew up. Can you give a little bit of the a little bit of insight into that chapter of your book and sort of extrapolate that to the broader implications of of what you're looking at here? Well, the the book isn't an autobiography or a memoir, but I do include some uh, personal experience as a way of sort of buttressing my argument and giving people some idea of where I'm coming from. And, uh, and, 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 I, and I do that through telling some stories about uh, growing up in a, in a family um, where my parents were divorced, but where my father was uh, very active in my life and uh, a huge presence in my life. So um, uh, I, did, I was not someone who grew up without a father uh, present, and I think that made a big difference in terms of outcomes. 
um, in my life, though not all the difference. I mean, uh, there have been other people, other members of my family and uh, uh, parts of my extended family that also came from uh, homes where fathers were present, uh, and the outcomes were not, not like mine. Some of them were, were, were very bad in some cases. So it's not... Uh, foolproof having a father in the home but we do know that it helps statistically it helps a great deal and, and I present some of those statistics in the book about how uh, children who grow up without fathers are more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system be addicted to drugs drop out of school teen pregnancies uh, all kinds of bad outcomes are associated with the absence of fathers um, but that's just an excuse I did not have growing up mm-hmm. and you know, you tackle some some interesting scenarios in the book. For example, you talk about racial profiling and experiences that you've had with law enforcement. What would you say to those who argue against racial profiling? The, the separate question, and to me the more important question is, you know, if you are concerned about perceptions of black male criminality in society, because those perceptions are clearly out there, if that is a concern, what should be done about it? And my response is not to focus on the rational behavior of most members of society to simply avoid such individuals and not take chances. The focus should be on changing the behavior that leads to those perceptions, not excusing that behavior, not changing the law to accommodate that behavior, but denouncing it as such. That is the responsible thing to do. The black left does not want to do that. They do not want to talk. They want to talk about the black incarceration rate, but they don't want to talk about the black murder rate. They want to talk about what percentage of black kids get suspended from school for bullying, but they don't want to talk about the preponderance of the bullies being black. And what's what's behind all that? I mean, we know that there there are racial differences in bad behavior. Look at who's in prison. Do you think this starts after kids leave school? I mean, the idea that you want to address bullying in school by going easy on the black kids, to me, I mean, where are your sympathies? Why are they with the bullies and not the kids who go to school to learn? This whole idea that we should be reducing uh, sentences for drug dealers because they're too harsh. Too harsh? Says who? The people they victimized back in the ghetto? How does it help him? How does it help those law-abiding citizens? Which, who, of course, the majority of the people in the ghetto are law-abiding. How does it help them to send these thugs back to the hood sooner rather than later? Why are our sympathies with the drug dealers and not with their victims? Mm-hmm. And transitioning a little bit into the politics of that, um, you know, sort of summarizing your argument, you're saying that people are focusing on symptoms of underlying problems and they don't like the results that they see. So they're fighting the results, but they're not looking at the underlying conditions. Rand Paul has obviously been going around and speaking a lot about these kinds of issues uh, in terms of criminality in the black community, but looking more at, again, the incarceration rates rather than underlying issues. What's your take on what Rand Paul has been saying uh, on these types of issues? I, I disagree with Rand Paul vehemently on this. Uh, he, this, this. Rand Paul considers this black outreach, by the way. He thinks that if um, conservatives adopt some of these views that Eric Holder and Barack Obama have about our racist criminal justice system, uh, Republicans will receive more black votes. That's his sort of gambit here. Same thing with the voter ID stuff. 
he's been talking about. Oh, why are conservatives harping on voter ID? Let's just stop talking about this. It's not that big a deal. It's turning off a lot of black voters. Well, first of all, it's not. Okay, majority, an absolute majority of blacks favor voter ID laws. Um, by the, uh, and a majority of the black caucus favored these harsher sentences for drug dealers when they were passed back in the 80s. Folks like Charlie Rangel led the way in these sentencing disparities. So, uh, again, he's off the mark there with his history. Um, but the, the, the other problem with um, Rand Paul's arguments and others who want to blame drug laws for uh, the racial makeup of our prison system is just the wrong on the facts. Uh, blacks are about 37% of the prison population. If you were to send home everyone in prison of all colors tomorrow who's there for a drug offense, blacks would still make up about 37% of the prison population. The incarceration rate among blacks is not being driven by our drug laws. Blacks are overrepresented among all violent crimes. And so it is not the drug laws that are driving this. And this idea that but for these racist drug laws, our prisons would not be teeming with young black men is just false on the facts. Empirically, that can be shown. Mm -hmm. And so given all that background, it leads into sort of a broader point that you make in the book, which I think was a, a really brilliant insight that political success often be inversely proportional to socioeconomic success of groups in this country. So you talk about historically, and again, this sort of parallels um, Thomas Ola's book, Black Rednecks, White Liberals, a little bit. Speak a little yes. bit about that. Yes, uh, as you mentioned, Tom Sowell has written extensively about this over the years, not just in the Black uh, uh, Rednecks White Liberals book, but uh, going back to the uh, to the 80s, his books in the 80s have shown this. Um, Michael Barone, political scientist, Michael Barone has also uh, written about this, and, and I cite both individuals in, in my in my book. And the basic argument is that um, in not only in the U.S. but in other countries, you will see that. Um, that political advancement was not a prerequisite for um, for advancing economically, and that those groups who tended to focus on economics first tended to rise faster. And uh, you mentioned the Irish; they were an example of a group that did it the the opposite. They came, and, and you had to bring uh, these uh, political machines in cities like New York and Philadelphia, um, and Boston in the early part of the 20th century, but uh, the Irish rank and file were not doing well while the Irish were actually running these cities. Um, it was only when those political machines began their decline that, uh, that black or Irish incomes began to rise, that the Irish began to rise as a group uh, to where they are today. So, um, so yes, this, this idea that, um, that, that, that political advancement is the key to rising economically is just not something that is seen in the patterns of other groups. But, you know, the left has done a brilliant job of convincing blacks that um, political advancement is the end-all, be-all, that the government is, is um, a source of all good and that a bigger government means more goodies. And so you have this over-dependence on government uh, among blacks, whether that's in terms of jobs, you know, at the post office or in the military, so forth, or an overdependence in terms of handouts when you're talking about food stamps or welfare. Uh, but it is an overdependence on government, and I think it's a huge barrier 
to blacks rising. Uh, you, they, they, they sort of uh, there, there's going to have to be a reckoning here, and 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 uh, because the, the the reality is that um, if anything, political power uh, tends to slow the advance of a group. Mm-hmm. And you talk about um, the, the masterful job the left has done um, in really in marketing their ideas. Um, with respect to the minimum wage and its discriminatory history, even dating back to apartheid South Africa, talk about that, because I don't think most Americans know about the race, racist roots of our minimum wage policies. Yes, the the, the minimum wage laws date to the uh, 30s and, um, and, and 40s and were put in place um, as a response to blacks migrating north and whites worried about jobs competition. And if you go back and read the congressional record, the debate at that time before they were implemented, um, race was explicit. It was given as an explicit reason for putting these laws in place to limit competition with white workers. So that that that's just the reality. Um, the other reality is that up until those laws were put into place or were allowed to take effect due to inflation, black labor participation rates and white labor participation rates weren't all that different. And in fact, black labor participation exceeded white labor participation in many years prior to these laws taking effect. And well into the 1950s or so, you saw similar unemployment rates and similar labor participation rates among blacks and whites. So um, the the laws have worked. <laughs> they've worked as originally intended, even if that isn't the intent, the intent today. They, they've worked in pricing a lot of blacks out of the labor market. And, I mean, the, the, the economics here is not complicated. When you make it more expensive to hire someone, fewer people get hired. And uh, blacks tend to be disproportionately affected because minimum wage laws disproportionately affect lower skilled, less experienced workers many of whom are black. Um, the, the, the con here is that the left sells the minimum wage as an anti-poverty program. But most people who are poor already make more than the minimum wage. And most of the people who make the minimum wage are not poor. They are teenagers working after school jobs in the suburbs. They are uh, moms staying busy while the kids are at school. They're senior citizens keeping busy in a retirement. That is your typical minimum wage earner, not a single mom raising four kids on her own. Um, and so uh, if you look at uh, poverty in America and households uh, in poverty, uh, their problem is no job, no workers in the home, not that they have workers who are only making the minimum wage. So to the extent that you are reducing job availability, you are not helping to alleviate poverty with the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you're pricing out the very most at-risk people who most need to get into the workforce and start building up a resume and the skills exactly. necessary to rise. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, of course, even before you get to a job is education. And it seems to be maybe the one issue where the left can't really deny the virtues of market competition and parents having choices and students having choices Yet, as reflected in the, the Holder Department of Justice, some still want to deny primarily black children superior educational opportunities. Why? Because they've decided to side with the adults who run 
public education in this country instead of siding with the children. Uh, and Democrats like Holder and Obama have sided with the adults because that means siding with the unions, who, of course, are huge um, uh, supporters of the Democratic Party. So you have the president putting the needs of his party ahead of the needs of these black kids. A president, by the way, who has never found a public school good enough for his own children, either before he was president or since. Um, you have him denying school choice to less fortunate, less accomplished uh, individuals in the black community. And it's a real shame. It's the only way to justify or to explain coherently some of the policies opposed by the left. I mean, you cannot defend on academic grounds a policy like last in, first out, where a teacher must be fired based solely on seniority, not whether or not she can teach. You cannot justify academically a policy that gives a teacher essentially a job for life after a couple of years in the classroom and makes her almost impossible to fire. You can't justify those policies academically. You can only justify them as job protection for adults, and that's exactly what they are. Mm-hmm. So just on these two issues alone, education and economics, you know, we've talked about the dire consequences of, of leftist policies. Why is it that someone coming at these issues on the conservative or libertarian, quote-unquote, can't seem to break through politically with the black community when it's in the black community's own self-interest to oppose these leftist policies? Well, part of it is what I said earlier about the left's ability to convince blacks that the government is uh, good for them and more government is better for them. You also, of course, have um, history in this country and where conservatives were in the civil rights movement. And there are blacks old enough to remember that, and they haven't forgotten it. Um, Finally, however, and I think this is the most relevant reason today, which is that you don't have serious Republican black outreach, in my opinion. And it's not going to be an issue or two that will sway black voters to the GOP, those black voters who are swayable, like young Younger, younger blacks. Uh, this is one area where I'll give Ron Paul a lot of credit, going in and speaking to black colleges and, and, and younger blacks, because I think those are, for the GOP, gettable votes. I don't think the NAACP types are, are – um, I think they're gone. I don't think they're, they're someone that, uh, that's interested in, in anything Republicans have to say. But younger voters are. Younger black voters are, I think. But in any case, I don't think you see serious – GOP black outreach. I mentioned Rand Paul doing it. You have people like Paul Ryan doing it now. Chris Christie in the re-election bid in New Jersey did it, going into places like Camden. Um, historically, you've had a few. Jack Kemp comes to mind. Richard Reardon out in Los Angeles when he was mayor there did some serious black outreach. Those are really exceptions. They're not the rule. And I don't ascribe racial animus to that. I think the reason is that Republicans can still win elections without the black vote. And until that fundamental fact changes, I don't expect to see a lot of black outreach. Uh, you know, time spent courting one group is less time spent courting another group. And if you don't expect to get much of a return on your time spent, you're not likely to do it. And so uh, until Republicans feel they can't keep winning elections without uh, uh, winning black votes, I don't expect to see a lot of outreach. Um, right now, for instance, you see a pretty big debate in the GOP over Hispanic voters and whether the GOP can continue to win 
without them? And if they're going to do outreach, how they should go about doing that outreach? It's a big debate about that. There is no such debate in the GOP concerning black voters right now. Mm -hmm. um, jumping to sort of the what, what happens going forward, um, one question I had for you was, how do we break through the sort of pervasive political correctness which makes topics like the ones you discuss in this book simply off limits? Well, I I think partly you do so by bypassing the black elites. I mean, you mentioned uh, school choice earlier. There's a huge disconnect between what is said by the people like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and the NAACP and what the black rank and file believes. Um, school choice is one example. Poll after poll after poll shows blacks overwhelmingly favoring school choice. You'd never know that listening to the NAACP. Just like the black rank and file overwhelmingly opposed busing, which the black elites pushed for back in the 70s and 80s. Of course, the black elites' kids weren't on those buses, but um, <laughs> they nevertheless pushed for busing as integration. You know, and the, the black black people were saying, no, just build good schools in our neighborhoods. We don't want to put our kids on a bus for an hour every morning. Black elites didn't want to hear it. Um, so you have to appreciate that disconnect and then um, bypass those elites and speak right to the black rank and file. One of the things that really annoys me when we were talking about black outreach and Republicans earlier is this attempt to go, uh, you know, kiss Al Sharpton's ring, kiss Jesse Jackson's ring, go through the NAACP whenever a Republican wants to reach a black audience. You get the, you know, the, the GOP nominee giving a speech at the NAACP convention so that they can get booed and it can be played endlessly on the nightly news. It just, it, it annoys me. Uh, that they feel the need to do that. You need to bypass those folks and go go into the neighborhoods, go into the barber shops and the bowling alleys and the convenience stores and, 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 and grocery stores and talk to these individuals. I think, unfortunately, a lot of Republicans are uncomfortable doing that, with a few exceptions, as I noted before. But that needs to change. And I, and I think uh, by bypassing that elite and speaking to the black rank and file, you can make some, some progress. There are, there are a lot of black conservatives out there who simply don't identify as such, but they, they are. And do you see in the next 10, 15, 20 years there being any efforts within the black community? And obviously the black community isn't monolithic to begin with, but mm -hmm. you talk about cultural values needing to change. Do you see the effects of leftist policies continuing to perpetuate themselves and metastasize, or do you see a real soul-searching that might go on and, and reforms happening? Well, what, what gives me hope is um... – is the field of education and what these choice programs, the ones that have been allowed to survive and, and, and replicate in some cases, they're just they're producing the goods. You're, you have some of these high-performing charter schools like KIPP and Democracy Prep going into the worst ghettos, setting up schools in the same building as the neighborhood schools and producing incredible outcomes on test scores and graduation rates. You know, that can't go unnoticed. The unions don't want you to notice it, but the neighborhoods notice, and that's why the wait lists are tens of thousands of kids long to get into these schools. And so I see some hope there, A, in more kids getting a decent education, but also in more blacks seeing how these school models work, which can help change things in a more 
in a more, I guess, complete way, more substantive way uh, down the road, because I think it's all got to start with education and the family. Uh, which is another area uh, that we were discussing earlier. The black family needs to get its act together, and attitudes towards education have to change. The name of the book is Please Stop Helping Us, How Liberals Make It Harder for Blacks to Succeed. Thanks so much for joining us, Jason. Appreciate it. Thank you. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com theblazebooks, and Twitter at The Blaze Books. You can follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten.